This week we're looking at uh, a big question, and the big question this week is, have you ever been offended? I think all of us have. Let's have a look at what it means to be offended. Resentment, hurt, anger, contempt, humiliation, displeasure, words, sin, and you could probably add to that list things that have offended you in life. We all have to face that offense. And I was having a look at uh, some of the old readings, which (coughs) the book of Samuel, which some of you have been reading if you've been working through Worldly Wise. And I want to just have a look at that today and look at it in some depth just to explain a few things about offense. You've got the story of David. He's a king and... David's had a a fancy for a lady called Bathsheba. And he sees her one day and decides, oh, I'll get her in my bed. So he's king. He just gives the instruction. And she's taken, put into David's bed. Just one small problem. (laughs) She's married. Well, that wasn't a problem for the king. He just organized with one of his military commanders, Joab, to have a to have him killed so there's no more husband in the scene. And David is completely oblivious to what he's done. And God sends the prophet Nathan to see him. And listen to what Nathan says to him. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing evil in his eyes? Every time that you or I sin, we are despising the word of God. And that offends God. And if there's one person that we do not want to be offending, it's God. And here David has offended God. But that's not all he's offended. He's also offended Bathsheba. He's also offended Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. And one of the things I've noticed when you read through Samuel, you'll find that it just keeps compounding. When you get offenses, it's never, it's never just one or two people offended. It always affects other people. And in Israel's case, if you read through Samuel, you'll find that terrible destruction and uh, problems that that nation constantly faced when one person after another becomes offended over one reason or another. And in David's life, that decision with Bathsheba was an important catalyst, because look what Nathan says to him. Now therefore the sword will never depart from your house, because you despise me. One of the things you have to realize is David repented of that. And I think it took him about two years to work through to a place of repentance with God. But having repented, God's government still continues. And that government decreed that the sword would never depart from David's house. His whole life was one rebellion and one person after another after another trying to kill him, trying to replace him as king. Started off with Amnon. Amnon was his first son. What did Amnon do? He decided to rape his younger brother Absalom's sister. And having raped her, Look at it from David's point of view. 
Can he say anything to Amnon? He's just raped this, this young, innocent young girl. What would Amnon say to him? Well, you did the same thing with Bathsheba. It cut the ground from under him. And the authority, he didn't have it to be able to say, you've done the wrong thing. Because it would have just come straight back to him. Well, so did you. Now, what happened there, though? Absalom is grievously offended because David does nothing. So not only is he grievously offended with David, he's grievously offended with his brother Amnon. And he waits patiently until he can get Amnon on his own, and he kills him. Later on down the track, Absalom is offended with, his, with David because David had nothing to do with him. He wouldn't let him come into his presence. So he rebels and tries to replace the king altogether. And guess what happened when he did that? A man called Ahithophel, who was one of the wisest counselors in David's kingdom, goes over to help Absalom and give him the counsel that he needed to kill David and replace him as king of Israel. Why did Ahithophel do that? Because he was the grandfather of Bathsheba. You see how that offenses keep snowballing in his life? And all through his ministry, right through to the end, one son after another tried to usurp the throne from his father, right to the end. And the people that were helping him were people that along the way have become offended. It's a terrible thing. The nation was riven constantly with uh, separation and splits as one person after another rebels against David. And they're all being crushed one after the other. But you can see when you read it that just the, the devastation that offenses cause. You see, there's two types of leadership, 2 Samuel, verse 20 and 9 and 10. I've had a look at uh, two people. One's Amasa and the other one's Joab. And they've had another split and there's another rebellion in Israel. So right away the king says, right, we've got to crush this before it gets too bad. And he appoints Amasa to, to be the commander-in-chief of the army. Now, the other person who's been the military commander is Joab. And it's a strange choice. Joab is the man with the experience. He's the experienced military commander. He's won victories. He's been in battle all his life. He's a good strategist. He's the ideal choice. Why would you look past Joab instead of picking up and go and pick Amasa? Amasa doesn't have the experience. He doesn't have the ability that Joab's got. But you see, you bear in mind, when you're reading in the Old Testament about David as a king, he's like a shadow of the New Testament Jesus Christ. So some of the decisions he's making are God-inspired. And God wanted Amasa. And David chose Amasa. Why? And this is something with, with the leadership you've got to look for. Amasa didn't have the ability, but he had a heart's desire for the king, and he wanted to serve the king. And that, was that, that was what caused David to choose Amasa. He wanted someone he could trust who could serve him and do the right thing by him, and, and who trusted and loved David. Joab, on the other hand, he got seriously offended because he is the commander. 
So what happens? He's got this nobody that's a master, hasn't got my experience, and they put him in charge. So he goes straight up to him with his sword, stabs him in the stomach, his stomach contents fill on the ground, and he's dead. That man was doing what? He was exerting himself. And he was offended by what had happened by the king's command, and he wasn't interested in whether the king wanted to Amasa, it's what he wanted that counted. And he stepped straight in there and took control because of offense. And that offense is also backed by pride that someone other than him was made commander-in-chief. These feelings are in everybody. We are all people who are subject to being feeling proud and being offended and getting annoyed with people. And you'll see, if you ever wonder why this church splits, it's because people get offended. And what we've got to do as a church is have a look at offenses and see how we're going to deal with this. Because you just can't keep going, offending, offending, offending. Somewhere along the line, you've got to learn how to deal with it so that you don't become offended. Let's have a look at uh, Mark 4. I notice it's more in the young people than the old. The young people have this idea that I'm entitled not to be offended. Let me give you a 24-carat gold guarantee. If you are going to be involved in any church anywhere, I guarantee you, you are going to get offended. You've got to learn how to deal with it. Because offenses will come. And how you deal with it is going to make all the difference between your Christian walk. This Mark is saying here that they've no root. They last a short time, but the, the trouble and the persecution comes because of the word and they'll fall away. How do you get the roots down? You've got to get into the church, you've got to get uh, into the word, and you've got to establish yourself. And then you've got to avoid offenses. Well, how are you going to do that with the offenses coming at you all the time? People can be really irritating sometimes. But you've got to learn about how to do it. Luke 22. I've chosen that triumph and disaster. And Peter was one of the disciples. He was... He's a bull-at-the-gate kind of guy. He was always the first to talk up. He's the first to get out of the boat and walk on the water. He's the first to suggest things and take the, the initiative and the lead in the, amongst the apostles. And yet, what happens with Peter? Disaster comes. And you've got to learn that in life, there's going to be triumphs and there's going to be disasters. And God allows them. He wants those in your life. He wants to see you walking into disaster. He wants to see you walking into triumph. Why? Because you've got to learn to cope with them. Peter was all up there in front leading the charge. And then what happens? Jesus gets arrested in the garden. He's taken, tried, crucified. He's dead. All their hopes and dreams are gone to ashes. He's met disaster, and what happens? 
a little serving girl says, don't you know Jesus? No, nope, never met him. Don't know him, not me. He denies him. Why? He couldn't cope with the disaster. What happens with people meet disaster? They go downhill, don't they? They sink. And the depth of despair. It's just the same with triumph. You can be on a high. God's healing you. He's doing miracles in your life and in your family. You're seeing tremendous moves of God in the church. Everything's on a high and everybody's up here on a high. But how do you cope with it when it's night that nose dies? And you, and you end up in the next, next week, it's disaster all around you. I noticed on the street when I was uh, preaching there, you'd get people, you'd preach about Jesus, and he would say to us, yeah, well, where was God when my daughter died? Where was God when my baby died? Well, God was never there for me. I'm not going to be bothered with God now. They can't cope with disaster in the world. They have no ability to cope. Whereas a Christian has to. And what God wants is you maintaining a level. Whether you're triumphing up here or you're going through disaster down here, he wants you on a stable level, content because Christ is with you. And that's something you have to work at. That's something when you uh, get in the situations, that's when you'll find the real challenge in your life. And everything is going wrong. Now's the time when you've got to maintain that equilibrium and keep yourself on that plane. Let's look at uh, Judas. Judas had the same idea of Christ as all the apostles, even John the Baptist. They all thought he was going to come, he was going to ride in triumph into Jerusalem, they'd overcome the Romans and would take over their whole country, and they'd rule with Jesus. And they all believed that. The only trouble was they had their end time theology wrong. And I don't think it's any different today from what the stuff I hear getting taught in the church today. You got to you can't put your trust in theology and on, on, on an end time theology and it's all going to work out and you're all going to get raptured. No, you're not. You're going to suffer that and you're going to go through disaster and you've got to learn to cope with it and God wants you to learn to cope in the midst of the trouble and in the midst of the triumph. Judas couldn't do it. All his hopes were in Jesus. And look what happened. To get the news, John the Baptist has had his head chopped off. What does Jesus do? Judas probably thought, now's the time for Jesus to move in and take over. But instead he just withdrew. Then he went out and he was healing and he was preaching to thousands and they were coming from all over the country to, to listen to Jesus and follow him everywhere he went. And of course, again, Judas is thinking, now they're going to make him king. And here they are, they're telling him, let's make Jesus king. What did Jesus do? He withdrew again. Then it gets to the point where they're going to kill him. So what does Jesus say? We're going to Jerusalem. And Peter says, no, 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 we don't want to go there alone. And Jesus says to him, get behind me, Satan. Because Satan wants you to cut and run. And the Lord recognized that straight away as an attack of Satan against them. 
and said, I know I'm going to, he didn't say it, but the subtext was, I know I'm going to die in Jerusalem, but that's my will of God, and it's not a disaster when it's the will of God. It's fulfillment of my, my ministry. And Judas looked at this and thought, this guy's hopeless. I've been following the wrong person. And just to cap it all off, you've got that little lady, Mary. She comes along and she pours the ointment on his head and his feet. And what was Judas thinking? All he could think of was, look at the money that's just got wasted there. That could have been sold. And he he had the bag, so he was thinking, I could have had that money. Everything Jesus taught him had gone off over his head. Nothing had stuck. He hadn't got hold of God's word. And you cannot deal with offenses unless you get a hold of God's word and apply it into your life. Judas didn't, and it led to disaster for Judas. Because he ended up just coveting more and more and stealing, and eventually, of course, he went down the hill. Peter, on the other hand, to his credit, He denied Jesus, but he hung on to Jesus. He knew he'd done the wrong thing, but he didn't let go of Jesus' word. And Jesus could still reach him. He couldn't reach Judas. He'd lost Judas, but he did have Peter. And it's when you, you know, Mark's saying about people going away from the church there, they're not necessarily lost. God wants to reach out to them again and bring them back into the, the body of Christ. There's always that hope there. But you see, with Judas, he'd given up on the word. He'd never penetrated. He'd never applied it to his own life. It couldn't do anything for him. 1 Peter 2 and verse, uh, chapter 2, 6 to 8. Jesus is described there as a rock. It's either a rock, which is a precious cornerstone for you, or it's a rock of offense to you. And he makes an interesting observation. He said that they stumble because they disobey the message. Now, who's he talking to? He says, to you who believe. So I'm talking today to you who believe, and they'll stumble if you disobey the message. The opposite of belief is, stum- is disobedience. But how can disobedience be the opposite of uh, believing? Because believing is not giving mental assent to Jesus dying on the cross and rising again on the third day. Believing is obeying God's word. You've got to take God's word into your heart. And you've got to walk in God's word. And you've got to apply God's word. Today I'm talking about offense. You're going to be offended. Some of you are going to be offended regularly at work. You'll be offended all over the place. In church, at work, even at home you can be offended. And you've got to learn how to deal with it. Take, for example, Adam and Eve. In the Garden of Eden, God wasn't there all the time. But he always left his word with them. The word was always with Adam and Eve. And the word was, 
Don't touch the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the day you eat that fruit, you will surely die. Now they had that choice. Are they going to take God's word and obey it? Or are they going to be disobedient? They chose to be disobedient. And we know how disastrous that has been. But you see, it's not believing that gets you saved. It's believing in and obeying. Without the obedience to God's word, all of this is a waste of time. I'm talking today about your, your being offended. It's a waste of time unless you take what I'm telling you today and start to apply it to deal with offenses. A lot of people will think, I'm right, so I'm offended by what you say. Now, when you preach God's word, people are going to be offended. You can preach about Muhammad and Buddha, anyone you like, but when you preach Jesus Christ, the world is offended. When Jesus preached to the Pharisees, they were offended. And it's going to happen because it's truth that's being preached. When you preach truth and Jesus Christ is the truth, it will reach people and it will challenge their thinking, it will challenge their hearts, and it will challenge their lifestyle. And they don't like it. They will be offended. That kind of offending is good. Get, in, get stuck into them. What happened when Jesus did that in his hometown? He stood before them, <coughs> quoted Isaiah and said, This day you've seen it fulfilled in your hearing. And they were offended. They tried to throw him off a cliff. That's the world's reaction. They don't like Christianity. They don't want to have their, their thinking and their lifestyles challenged. And they won't appreciate it when you do it. <laughs> Sometimes just getting the flick right, it's tricky. I've got here, I haven't put it in there, the parable of the unforgiving servant. But I chose this parable because... Normally, when Christ told a parable, he didn't explain it to the audience. He just told them the parable, and that was it, left it. But this one was so important that Jesus explained it to his disciples because he wanted to make very sure they fully understood what the implications were, and there was no misunderstanding. And what's the parable about? It was a, he told the parable of a, a master coming to his servant. And he, the servant owes him, in our money today, probably about $10 billion. And he says to him, where's my money? And the man says, please have mercy on me. I haven't got it. Please forgive me. And the master says, okay, I'm going to forgive you all of your $10 billion. And then that man goes out and he goes down the road and there you are 
and you owe him $50. He gets you by the throat and says, you owe me $50. And you say to them, well, please forgive me. I'll try and pay you back. Please wait and give me some time. And he says to them, no, you're going to prison now. And puts them in prison. The contrast is huge deliberately. It's that the forgiving of the debt of sin is like $10 billion, God's forgiven you. And the debt of $50 is someone who's offended you. You don't like it because they've offended you. And that offense in God's eyes, he's saying, that's the $50. You've got them by the throat and you put them in prison. You're not going to let them go and you're not going to forgive them the debt. You do that, he says, and I'm not going to forgive you your debt. Now, what's the prayer we pray? Forgive us our trespass as we forgive those who trespass against us. And if you're not going to do it for $50, God says, I'm not going to do it for you for $10 billion. So it's in our interests. It's never to hold offenses. We daren't hold offense. We can't afford to do it. And yet Christians all all over the place do it all the time. I've got here Hebrews 12 and 15. Search diligently, lest any root of bitterness springs up, and thereby many are defiled. What's bitterness? It's unfulfilled revenge. When someone's offended you, you remember it. And any time you see them, what are you going to do? You avoid them? Or you just do something to get back at them? Any, any reaction with that person you're, that you've been offended by is that holding them by the throat. You're not letting them go. You haven't let the offense go. You'd rather hold on to the offense than be forgiven $10 billion. I had an actual example of it. I had uh, a situation where someone was going around telling lies behind my back and I didn't know anything about it. And I was at a big meeting and I happened to see this person there. And God spoke to me. And he said to me very clearly, I knew it was God too, I don't know why, but just <clears throat> the voice just said, David, go and see him and ask the man to forgive you. And I thought, obviously God hasn't understood the situation. I said, um, this is all in my mind. I'm explaining to God. I said, look, I haven't done anything. He's gone around behind my back telling all these lies. None of it's true. And now you want me to go and apologize to him. <clears throat> and I waited and God said, I want you to go and apologize to him. So I had a second go at God. I said, look, God, he stabbed me in the back. He should be coming to me. I'm not me going to him and apologize. God's very economical with words. He just said, I want you to go and apologize to him. 
And I thought, well, that's three times God's done this. I'd better go and do it. Now, I can't go to the man and, and re-establish fellowship if I go along and say, now you've done this to me and I think this is wrong and that's wrong and the next thing's wrong. You have to go and take the low road. So I went along and humbly apologized. I was offended him and please forgive me, etc. And he was very gracious. and He said, yeah, that's fine. We were friends again. But I thought, I wasn't fully aware of it. But in my heart, there was that little rock of offense towards him. I was just holding back that little bit of offense at what he'd done. And it wasn't until I went and apologized and asked for, and asked for forgiveness that the offense was dealt with. And otherwise, I'd have been going before Christ, still hanging on to this guy for the $50, and then wondering why things weren't working out for me. Ephesians, you, you've got the basic steps here in Ephesians for dealing with offense. Because God's not interested in who's right and who's wrong and I'm the one that's right so you've got to apologize to me. He just wants us to reestablish fellowship one with another. Get rid of the bitterness, get rid of the rage, the, the anger, the brawling, the slander, any kind of malice. Be kind and compassionate. Forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. Our job isn't to decide the guilt or innocence of the person. Our job is to forgive and be compassionate and take the low road to do it when it's necessary. And the best way is to go and see them personally and get it reconciled. It's not always possible, but even then you've still got to do it. I want everyone in the place to have a think about it. I don't think there'd be anyone in here that's somewhere along the lines, somewhere, someone's offended you. Think about that person who's offended. One of the things Satan will do is he'll keep bringing that person to your memory and you'll keep bringing it to them. And he likes to keep the offense going. The reason for that is where brothers dwell in unity, God commands the blessing. Why is there no blessing commanded by God on a church? It's because it's over here is offended with over here and over here is offended with over here. Everybody's offended with someone else somewhere along the line. And he drives a wedge between people in the church. And while he's driving wedges in there, God can't command the blessing. God wants the church dwelling in unity. When God gets the church dwelling in unity, God commands the blessing. Our job is to deal with the offenses. God's job is to pour out the blessing. I'd like everyone to pray. And I want you to join me in prayer. Think of someone, anyone, who has been you've been offended with. Satan will help you here. He'll remind you. He'll tell you. Lord, pray this. 
Pray this after me. Lord, help me. Can everybody say, Lord, help me? (laughs) To get out of the hurt and offense that I hold in my heart. I don't have the strength. Please help me. Now Satan's going to bring that person back to your heart again. What are you going to do when he does it? You're going to have to pray for that person. Every time he reminds you of that person and what they've done to you, pray for them. Pray that God will bless them. Pray that God will bless their ministry. Don't let the offense come back into your heart. Keep praying for them and eventually he'll give up. Sometimes, if it's a serious offense, you might have to fast and pray to break that offense off your life and to keep praying for that person until you can pray it and mean it. Because it's got to come from the heart. And God knows your heart. He knows when you mean it. So persist with it until you get the breakthrough. Don't let him put the wrong thoughts in your mind. Don't let him go back over the offense, how you were offended, what he did to hurt you. Just reject it. Keep rejecting it. Keep praying for him. It's a battle for your mind. You either let God's word in there and you let God's word triumph in obedience or Satan will get in there and he'll have you out of the way. <coughs> I like uh, Abe Lincoln had, had a really good grasp of this. I destroy my enemies when I make them my friends. And Matthew says, love your enemies. Bless those who curse you. Do good to those who hate you. And pray for those who mistreat you and persecute you. That's the verse you're using to deal with offenses. And I, I can, I, can I advise you, if you're going to memorize a verse anywhere in the Bible, get a hold of that verse because you're going to need it. You're going to be offended And you're going to have to deal with it. You've got to avoid the offenses. But they can be triumphs or they can be disasters. You're the one that chooses. Are you going to obey God's word? Are you just going to drift along? I slotted this in. It's it's not part of the sermon. But I thought for all you young people, one day you'll get married. And I thought this was quite a good bit of advice for uh, the men when you get married. My wife amazes me. She can can remember a statement I made three, four years ago. Okay, thank you. That's it.